Hello, my name is Chandler O'Leary. And my name is Johnny Hatch. Welcome to Bedside Business, a student-run podcast where we talk with physicians about how they use business principles to improve their lives and the lives of their patients. We believe that business is a tool physicians can use to help their patients fight against burnout and make the world a better place. We aim to explore all these topics and more. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Demetrio Aguila III. Dr. Aguila has practiced as a general surgeon, otolaryngologist, reconstructive plastic surgeon, and peripheral nerve surgeon. After serving honorably in the Air Force, Dr. Aguila opened Healing Hands of Nebraska, a practice focused on providing world-class affordable health care. We start our conversation speaking about direct primary care and how this model allows physicians and patients to align their incentives. Then, we discuss how Healing Hands of Nebraska is able to provide quality care at affordable prices. We discuss how Dr. Aguilar's practice allows patients to pay up front, finance their care, or even pay for their care through volunteering and service. We finish the episode hearing about Dr. Aguilar's innovative M25 program. This program allows patients without money to receive world-class care, serve their community, and stand dignified through the process. We hope you enjoy. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Aguila. Hi, Aguila. thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so before we started recording, we talked a little bit about, you were talking about direct primary care. Now, you're not a primary care physician, but can you explain to us a little bit about what direct primary care is and why it's something that healthcare professionals should be interested in? Sure, sure. So let me just give you a little background so that it, um, so that your listeners have a, a context in which to understand some of my comments. So you're, you're correct that I'm not a primary care physician. However, when I was in the Air Force, I started out in primary care. I was a, I was a combat flight surgeon for almost five years before I went into ear, nose, and throat surgery, and then eventually went into plastic surgery, and then from there went into peripheral nerve surgery. And so I have a rather varied and, and convoluted background. And, uh, and it's because of that, that kind of, kind of, uh, you know, circuitous route that I've, I've been exposed to a lot of different ideas and a lot of different approaches to how we take care of people. And as we were talking about earlier, you know, direct primary care is, it's an innovative approach that is in reality, not nearly as innovative as people think it is, um, which is what makes it so beautiful. Okay. So, um, you know, just to back up a little bit. When I was younger, uh, way back in 19 Forgotten, you know, I, I, I used to work in my dad's office. Uh, I, I started when I was a kid. My dad is a retired physician, physical medicine and rehabilitation. And, uh, you know, I started working in his office. Uh, at first, I was, you know, emptying the trash and scrubbing toilets. And then I kind of worked my way up through every single job in his office. And by the time I, you know, by the time I went off to college, the only job in his office that I didn't do was actually see the patients. I did, you know, I was doing everything else at one point or another. And at the age of 14, I was my dad's billing manager. Okay. Can you imagine that? Okay. So at 14 years old, now, is that because I'm some kind of genius? Uh, I would say no. It, it has nothing to do with, with my intelligence or, or lack thereof. It, but it has everything to do with the fact that the system was much simpler than, than it is now. So the question then arises, well, why is it more complicated now? And does it need to be, Right. And so um, that's where direct primary care comes in. So the idea behind direct primary care is that instead of paying fee for service, in other words, you, know, you come in for a doctor's visit, here's, the, here, here's how much the doctor's visit costs. You come in for a flu shot, here's how much the flu shot costs. You come in for a, you know, for a school physical or, or a work physical or whatever, here's how much that costs. Instead of paying for every single item along the way, kind of like you would at a grocery store, as an example, you instead sign up for a subscription, more like a gym membership, okay? And so like when most people, when they have a gym membership, they say, okay, I'm going to pay whatever the amount is. Let's say 99 bucks a month. What does that 99 bucks a month get you? It gets you unlimited access to the gym. If you want to be there every hour that they're open, you can be there every hour that they're open. And if you want to be there one hour for the entire month, well, it still costs you the same amount of money. And that's how direct primary care works. And so 
as an example, Strata Healthcare. We're we're affiliated with Strata Healthcare here in Nebraska. It's the single largest direct primary care practice in the state of Nebraska and one of the largest ones in the entire country. Um, they charge $99 a month for a one-month subscription, and all your primary care needs are included in that for the entire month. If you need to go in there every day, that's included. You go in there once. It's the same fee. And so you know, you're not sitting there wondering, well, I don't know, do I have the money to go in? The only thing that you have to decide is, do I need to go in, right? Um, now, you may think to yourself, well, wait a minute. I mean, if the patient comes in five times this month and they've only paid 99 bucks, but normally five visits would net me $450, well, I've lost a whole bunch of money. I mean, how do, you, how do those businesses stay afloat, Right. So let's go through some simple numbers here. And I'm going I'm to simplify this just a little bit just to make the math easy. Uh, but I think it'll illustrate the point. Uh, direct primary care actually is a great benefit to the patients. It's a great benefit to the doctors. It's a great benefit to everybody involved. So let's take an example. The average primary care doctor in the United States has impaneled 5,000 patients. Okay, they have 5,000 people that they're responsible for. Okay, and then the average primary care doctor is seeing patients about once every 12 to 15 minutes. Okay, and the average primary care doctor in the United States makes about $150,000 a year after you know all their other expenses. So you're thinking to yourself, well, that's you know, that that's it, you know, those fees that we talked about before. But let's say, for instance, you want to spend more than 12 minutes with your patient. Okay. Uh, you're like, well, it's not fair to my patient. They're not going to get the care that they need. I want to spend an hour with my patients just to make the math easy. Right. So instead of, if, if you're, if you're going to see patients once every hour, well, you can't have, you can't have 5,000 patients that you're responsible for anymore. Right. You have to cut that back to a thousand patients. So, okay. So you have a thousand patients that you're spending an hour with each. Okay. Now, what did we say that the direct primary care fee was? It was 99 bucks a month. Let's round that up just a little bit to make the math easy. Okay. So $100 a month, a thousand patients. What does that work out to per month? Over the course of the year, it's $1.2 million. Okay. So what have you just done? You've taken somebody, a doctor and said, you know what? I want you to spend more time with your patients. You've given the patient transparency and affordability, okay? And the patient now gets the care that they need in a way that's not rushed. And even if you, can, even if you say, well, you know, our overhead is 50%, well, that's still $600,000 that the doctor is going to take home versus the 150000 seeing patients, you know, at, a, at, at an incredibly rapid rate and not providing them the care that they need. Who wins? Everyone wins. Yeah. That, the only person losing nutshell, is the... Insurance, the insurance company, yeah. ding, 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 right there. Exactly. Okay. So how does this work with insurance? It doesn't. And that's the point. Okay. Because insurance companies tack on all kinds of extra administrative costs. So in our practice, for instance, you know, we, we don't have contracts with insurance companies. Why don't we have contracts with insurance companies? Because that adds a whole bunch of administrative burden to what we can and cannot do for our patients. And that administrative burden results in increased cost, which then gets passed on eventually, either directly or indirectly to the patient. So yeah, one, I've heard some, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of direct primary care. I've heard a lot of good things about it. And I've heard some, things that, that make me worried. And, and I don't want to talk too much about direct primary care because I think that's an issue for another time. Um, but all the concerns that I've heard brought up about direct primary care, um, I've heard good reasons why it's still the best option. And one of the reasons is, is well, what about Medicaid patients um, or Medicare patients? And, and I've heard that there's a bill being uh, written right now to help patients, essentially, instead of using um, Medicare you know, go to our in-network doctors, it'd be more of like a food stamps thing where you get this money and you can go spend it at a direct primary care physician. Um, and hopefully that doesn't ruin some of the good things that direct primary care has done, but I think it's a great option as well. But um, I did want to ask, because you're a specialist, you don't, 
really fit into this subscription model. You know, I don't need to go see an ear, nose, throat, or a peripheral nerve surgeon every month. So where do you come in into this picture? Right. So one of the things, and that's a great question. And it's, it's one of the, the questions actually we've been trying to, we've been trying to find an analog to the, to the subscription model for specialty care. Uh, and there are some challenges that, uh, that exist in that. So, you know, in the primary care realm, you want to develop a long-term relationship with your patients so that you can help them manage their care, help them get healthier rather than relying on when they're sick. Because in a fee-for-service model, when do doctors get paid? When patients are sick, right? And so, from again, from from uh, from the standpoint of aligning your incentives with your outcomes, the desired outcome is a healthy patient. But you're incentivizing sick patients, right? You're incentivizing doctors to take care of sick patients, not to get them healthy. Because you, you get a patient healthy, well, then well, where's my income now? Okay, um, we see this in certain fields of medicine where you know it's 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 better financially to keep that patient going than it is to fix the underlying problem. Um, and thankfully, the vast majority of doctors set that aside. But again, you know, if we talk about aligning incentives uh, with outcomes in order to get the best possible outcomes, well, that system is totally it, it's not set up properly. Um, what happens in direct primary care is that you're now incentivizing the doctor to get the patient healthier because that means the patient has to spend less time in their office. They're still getting paid that same, that same, uh, that same amount of money for that patient, but you're now figuring, helping the doctor figure out, well, how do I get this patient healthier? So he doesn't have to come into my office five times a month. He only comes in my office one time a month, which, which results in a healthier patient, happier patient. And, and then, uh, you know, a practice, which is, which is equipped to be more flexible and to be able to take care of the patients better. Now, the real question then arises, as you mentioned, well, how does a specialty practice fit into this direct primary care model? And one of the things that we've found in collaborating with Strata Healthcare and with other direct primary care practices is that patients who elect direct primary care are much more focused on value uh, than, than most other people are. Okay, um, because they are what we like to think of as informed consumers. Okay, uh, consumers of healthcare in this case, and so you know you hear this phrase that everybody talks about: value-based healthcare. Value-based healthcare. It's a phrase that uh, that CMS likes to use in talking about. Oh, you know, we're we're switching to value-based healthcare, but. I think it's a misnomer because in order to judge value, again, let's think about this from an economic standpoint, right? In order to judge value, you need two pieces of information, right? And what are those two pieces of information? You need to know quality and you need to know cost, right? And in most value-based care models that CMS is pushing, it's really hard to pick out those two elements, right? Whereas in the direct primary care model, you could see the quality and you know the cost. And so how do we fit into that? We offer price transparency in our practice. And, and through the price transparency, combined with a known, you know, a known level of quality of the care which we provide, uh, and we can, we, we can show data in terms of outcomes, patients can then judge for themselves, okay, is this the value proposition that I like? Is this the value proposition that suits me and my needs the best? Um, what it then does is it sets up a, a model in which you have true competition, right? Because then doctors are competing for the competing for patients, and they're competing for patients based on the quality that they offer and the cost that they offer, which gives you that value proposition. One question I have is when you go see a specialist, those costs are usually a lot higher, right? So how do patients offset that cost? Um, is it, you know, they're not paying insurance, so they have more cash flow to do that? Or, you know, how do patients fit a big bill from a specialist? Well, that's a great question. So there's a number of different ways you can go about that. The first thing to do is to take a look at the difference, and this is one of the things we encourage our patients to do, is take a look at the difference in what your cost is when you go see somebody who is, as they say, in network, okay, meaning that 
that doctor has a contract with their insurance company uh, versus going to see somebody who is not in network, meaning that doctor is independent of the insurance company. Okay. And what you'll often find, and, and all you have to do, you can, you can look this up. Optum publishes a book every year. Uh, it's called the National Fee Analyzer. Okay, this National Fee Analyzer. All you have to do is open that book up. You can take any CPT code or any ENM code. So CPTs are common procedural terminology that's used for various types of procedures. ENM codes are evaluation and management codes that you use to uh, take a look at you know, how much work was done in a, in an office visit. And so the code is supposed to reflect how much work was done, right? So you can look up any CPT code, any ENM code, and find out what the national average is that insurance companies pay for that particular code. And, and they list it at the 50th percentile, the 75th percentile, and the 90th percentile, along with what Medicare pays. Okay. So that information is readily available for people that are interested in looking for it. But what you find is that when you look at those codes, what the insurance company pays uh, is a little bit misleading, okay? Because what it actually says, those numbers actually correspond not so much to what the insurance company pays, but what the insurance company approves. That doesn't necessarily mean the insurance company is going to pay for all of it. So what do I mean by that? So let's say, for instance, you needed an appendectomy. I don't do appendectomies anymore. I, that, was, that was years and years and years ago. But let's say, for instance, you needed an appendectomy, okay? And let's say that, that appendectomy, uh, let's say I, I'm just picking numbers out of, the, out of the air here, okay? So let's say I sent a bill for $15,000 for your appendectomy, okay, to your insurance company. Um, and so what's the insurance company going to do? Well, they're going to negotiate, as they say. Uh, there's really no negotiation that goes on. They just say, "Well, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to pay fifteen thousand dollars. We're going to approve eight thousand dollars." Okay, so they can say to their shareholders, "Well, look, we just saved you seven grand." Okay, now let's say it's the first of January, right? Do you guys know what the average household deductible is in the United States now? It's about seventy-five hundred dollars. Yeah, $7,500. And the average um, annual uh, health insurance premium for an American household is about $14,000. Okay, so $14,000 is your premium, and then $7,500 is your uh, your deductible. Well, the insurance company's first of January, the insurance company just approved $8,000, and your deductible is $7,500. So who's paying that $8,000? The patient is going to pay $7,500 of it, and the insurance company will pay $500 of it. Okay? That's how it works. But one of the things that you don't know, that you don't often hear, is that insurance companies have stipulations on what it is you're supposed to charge and what it is you're supposed to receive. Okay? Because they want to be able to say to their shareholders, look, look at how much money we saved. You know? And, and there's a whole bunch of stipulations in the contract that say what I, as a, phys- as a physician, can or cannot do with my patients uh, with respect to the care that I provide to, to a beneficiary of this insurance contract, right? What does that mean? So let's say, for instance, you came to see me. Again, we'll use the appendectomy as an example, okay? And it's $15,000, and the insurance company approves eight, and you owe, you owe me $7,500, okay? But let's say... You don't have 7500 bucks. What then? Can I just say, well, you know what? Don't worry about it. I'll just take the $500. No, I can't do that. I have to chase after you for the money, no matter how bad I feel about it. Okay, why? Because the contract that I signed with the insurance company stipulates that I have to do that. Because if I just write that off right off the bat without proving, without you proving that you're going to suffer financial hardship as a result, I'm in violation of my contract. Okay, that's breach of contract. That's there, there are legal implications to that, right? If nothing else, I could I could be fined by the by the insurance company. I, I mean, they could they could kick me out. There's there's all kinds of potential problems with that, right? And so you know, a lot of people think, oh, well, in network, in network, that's that's a really good thing. Well, what it really does is it handcuffs the patient and it handcuffs the doctor. 
Okay. Because what ends up happening is that the doctor is no longer working for the patient. Okay. Who's the doctor working for in that case? The, the doctor's working company. for the insurance company, right? And who is also working for the insurance company? The patient, right? Because the patient is now doing a whole bunch of screaming and yelling, very often getting pissed off at the doctor, okay? Uh, but also getting really mad at the insurance company and sending paperwork back and forth and phone calls and so forth and so on while the insurance company just kind of sits there and stiff arms and says, oh, sorry, didn't you read the fine print on page 103, section 2, subsection B, that says that you know when the moon aligns with the sun in this pattern and you know, and, and gravity is, is affected in this way by, you know, the, the turning of the Milky Way that uh, we only pay 28.3% of what we promised we would earlier, you know, or whatever. I mean, there, there's all kinds of fine print like that. You know, I, I speak from personal experience. You know, when my youngest daughter was born uh, three years ago, she was born in September. And with her birth, you know, we far exceeded our, our family deductible and our individual deductible. Over the course of the next three months before the end of the calendar year, uh, because of a whole bunch of loopholes in the insurance policy, and we were told we had so-called good insurance, um, because of a whole bunch of loopholes in the insurance policy, we were responsible for another $8,000 in medical bills, even though we had already exceeded our deductible. And even though all of those different bills were so-called covered services. Yeah, I'll summarize real quick, but I, I think that's a really good segue to the next um, thing we were going to talk about. But in summary, I think you're talking about two really important things that a lot of people, especially medical students, are totally unaware of. Okay. There's the power dynamics between the insurance company, the doctor, and the patient. And then running through all of that is the incentives. And, you know, obviously a lot of doctors are good people and are able to circumvent those incentives, but it's something that I think we need to be aware of as future doctors and as medical students, because it's something that eventually it's, it's already catching up to us. And it's probably only going to get worse unless we align those incentives, incentives to work best for the patient. And that kind of brings us to the next thing, which is where we first actually heard about you, was through your uh, M25 program. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it kind of relates to the things we were talking about earlier? Sure, sure. So thank you for asking that. The, the M25 program is the heart and soul of our practice, Healing Hands in Nebraska. You know, we opened up that, uh, this practice about two and a half years ago. And, uh, and the, the, the intent and the goal of the practice was to shed the shackles of the insurance industry and to be able to offer patients value that's fair, that's transparent, that's compassionate and that's affordable and, and care that's world-class all, all in one package. And, and I think we've, you know, we've achieved that and we, and we're continuing to grow in that regard. And so in order to understand the M25 program, we have to back up a little bit and take a look at uh, how our practice functions outside the conventional insurance model. Okay. So, Healing Hands of Nebraska has no contracts with any commercial insurance carriers, meaning that I could charge patients whatever the heck I want. Now, a lot of people would think right away, oh, well, that means he's going to charge outrageous amounts of money because, you know, he's greedy like that. But what you find actually, uh, and, and we, we do this for patients, you know, we, we put in there what the average insurance fee would be anytime a patient comes in they get an invoice um, that says, okay, this is how much your visit's going to cost today. As a matter of fact, before they even come for the visit, they have an opportunity to look at a menu, just like, you know, just like you go into McDonald's or you go into, you know, into some other kind of restaurant, you know, or you go to get a new tire for your car. You can look up on the wall and you can see, ah, okay, so a new tire costs this much and the rotation costs this much and, you know, inflating it and alignment and all that other stuff. And you know what it's going to cost you beforehand. And so patients have the opportunity before they even walk in the door to find out exactly what their care is going to cost them right down to the last penny. No surprise bills. Okay. They know that before they walk in. Why? Because it's important for patients to know what they're getting themselves into, right? In the field of medicine, and this is a phrase that you know you and your and your classmates will hear more and more as you get farther along in your medical training. And for those who are more advanced in their medical training, you've heard this already a million times. You know, we talk about, particularly with surgery, 
making sure the patients understand the risks, the benefits, and the alternatives of the proposed therapy, right? And we spend a lot of time talking about that. We do that from a medical standpoint. But isn't it only fair that patients should know the risks, the benefits, and the alternatives from a financial standpoint as well? We do that in every other field of endeavor, right? Um, and we can go into that in a little more detail in a little bit, but uh, I'll come back to that. Okay, so what do we do? Patient comes in and let's say they need procedure X, whatever procedure X might be, okay? So we tell them, okay, here's the CPT code that's associated with procedure X. You can look it up yourself. You can call your insurance company and find out what they typically pay for that. Here's the fee that we would have to charge based on the typical insurance contract, even though the insurance company isn't going to pay that, this is what we would typically have to charge because we have to fight with the insurance companies over whatever it is that they, you know, what they deign to pay us, right? But here's our discounted fee if we don't involve the insurance company at all, which typically is anywhere from one third to one tenth of what it might otherwise cost. Okay. Our, our, our menu is available for anybody to look at. As a matter of fact, from time to time, patients will ask us, well, I'm not sure I believe you. Can you email that to me? Sure thing. We email them the PDF and has down there at the bottom. So it'll have a one page of the most common codes and procedures and visit types that we have in our office. And if there's any other thing that we need to do for them, you know, we just type up the invoice. They have it in writing before they walk out the door. You know, if somebody comes in and, and they, need, uh, they need a facial fracture repaired, or a better example, let's say they need carpal tunnel surgery, right? Because I do a lot of carpal tunnel surgery. Um, if they need carpal tunnel surgery, they know right before they walk out the door exactly how much that carpal tunnel surgery is going to cost. And so what I, what I do then is I tell patients, look, I know the idea of working Outside the system can be really scary, but here's what I would ask you to do, okay? Because you're looking at this, you're saying, wow, uh, that's great that you're trying to save me all that money, but that's still a lot of money. This is what I ask you to do. When you go see Dr. So-and-so, who's in network, because I know you're going to do that, okay? Because you think that going to see somebody in network is going to cost you nothing, because that's the whole point of the network, right? When you go see Dr. So-and-so, because he's in network, Ask Dr. So-and-so, so how much is this going to cost me? What's my out-of-pocket cost going to be when I go see you and you do this procedure for me? And when they can't tell you what your out-of-pocket cost is going to be, when they can't tell you in writing that it's going to be less than what you're going to pay me, then you should ask yourself, well, is this in-network idea such a great idea in the first place? Right, Because the whole idea of going to see somebody in network is that, well, it's going to cost me less money. But very often, it doesn't. I think it's funny that it's actually Halloween right now when we're recording that. And I think that's uh, probably a very scary situation for a lot of people listening to this. Their patient looking at them in the eyes and saying, how much is this going to cost? I think when you said those words, a lot of people's hearts probably dropped. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you know, that's one of the, that's one of the conversations that we are not afraid to have. And you know why? Because in our practice, we have that conversation every single day. We are not afraid to tell patients how much it's going to cost. Why? Because we're proud of the fact that we are offering value. We're offering transparency. And I tell patients, you know what, if you can find somebody that can offer you the quality care that we offer at a better price, number one, go get that care there. Number two, Tell me how much it was so that I can adjust my fees accordingly. Yeah. So Dr. Aguilar, one of the things um, that, that I suspect that you have a problem with, and, and this has to do with the M25 program, is they say, awesome, one-third the price of what it would cost at, a, at an in-network provider, right? Right. Um, or one-tenth the cost. Awesome. I still don't have enough money. Yes. You know, what, 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 what happened now? then? Exactly. So, so every single patient who walks in the door gets offered three options. Okay. Uh, option number one is the one that we just talked about. Okay. Here's the cash price, cash discount, take it or leave it. This is, this is the deal. Okay. Um, and what we find is that about 10% of the patients that we offer that to don't ever come back. But if you ask any surgeon, they'll tell you, that about 10% of their patients don't come back anyway, 
regardless of whether they're in network or not, you know, because they're scared of the prospect of surgery or whatever the case might be. They decide, you know what, I'm not going to do this today, or I'm not going to do it with so-and-so or whatever, you know, maybe they're intimidated because I'm so good looking. I don't know. You know, (laughs) Um, (laughs) that's going to be my patient's problem. Right, right. Exactly. So, uh, you know, so about 10% of patients will, will walk away and that's okay. You, you just have to be prepared for that. You know, patients have to make decisions for themselves, which is one of the beauties of this system. Um, about another 40% of patients will typically decide within one to two months, you know what? I like this value proposition. This is worth it to me. This is what, this is what I'm going to do. And then the remaining 50%, they'll disappear and they'll be back in about 18 months after they've gone around and asked everybody else, how much is it going to cost me with you? How much is it going to cost me with you? How much is it going to cost me with you? And when they can't get a straight answer from anybody except us, then they say, well, you're the only one that I trust because you're the only person that's been able to give me a straight answer. So I'm going to go with you. Okay. So anyway, let's say, let, let's, let's pick. Procedure X, as we were talking about before, okay? And I say, you know, we're going to save you all this money. Oh, that's great, doc. But, you know, I don't have $5,000 laying under my pillow. Okay, well, then option number two is third-party financing. So we have, we have a number of different companies that we partner with that help patients spread that cost out over time if they choose to do so. I mean, you know, buying, buying healthcare is it, – it's – it's a significant investment, okay? Just like buying a car, just like buying a house, right? And when you buy a car, most people will, will, will end up not having all the money to pay for the car up front. Does that mean they can't drive? No, they find other ways to finance that. The vast majority of people don't have enough money laying around to buy a house outright. Does that mean they're not allowed to have somewhere to live? No, obviously we have mortgages in order to help patients do that, right? Um, but let's say, for instance, okay, let's say, for instance, again, it's procedure X, it's $5,000. Well, doc, I, I don't have $5,000. And I just graduated from high school. So I have no credit history, which means I can't qualify for any of your financing programs. What now? Okay. Why do you hate people like me? I've heard that question before, okay? I've heard, uh, but you know, uh, interestingly, it's never a patient that says that. It's always a doctor, another doctor who doesn't understand how our program works, who says, why do you hate people like that? You know, they come up with these, with these scenarios and they're like, why do you hate these people? I'm like, I don't. I said, this is where the M25 program comes in. And this is our favorite part, okay? So I could theoretically do that surgery for that patient free of charge, right? I could do it for free. And conceptually, that, that would be the easiest thing to do, right? Assuming I don't have insurance contracts that prevent me from being able to do that. But what do we know about how much the average American values something they get for nothing? Not they value it about that much, right? <laughs> Big donut, okay? Yeah. And so the question then isn't really a question of money. It's a question of, as we talked about before, incentives and motivators, right? How do you incentivize somebody who has no money to invest in himself? Now, what do I mean by that? One of the things that we see in patients who have no buy-in in their care is that they get worse outcomes, Okay, that's one of the reasons that, uh, as an example, uh, bariatric surgeons who are doing weight loss surgery require patients to demonstrate that they are invested in their weight loss. And there's a whole bunch of different things they have to do. They go through all the psychiatric screening and they go through medical and metabolic screening and a whole bunch of other stuff so that the patient can show they're really dedicated. Now, you could argue, well, wait a minute, you're putting on putting up all kinds of barriers to that patient's care by doing you know, all of these extra tests and all of these extra hoops they have to jump through. In reality, though, what you're doing is you're equipping those patients to have more successful outcomes. And you're also screening out the patients that are going to have poor outcomes because they don't have the proper incentives, right? Same thing in orthopedic surgery, right? 
you come in with knee pain and you got a bad x-ray, is the orthopedic surgeon going to say, oh, well, let's just go replace your knee right now? No, he's going to have you do injections. He's going to have you go through physical therapy. He's going to have you do a whole bunch of other things like that. Why? Number one, because there's the potential to get a better outcome because maybe we can avoid surgery. But number two, that investment on the part of the patient demonstrates that the patient is motivated to get the best possible outcome. If they follow the directions before surgery, it's more likely to follow directions after surgery. So now I'm a surgeon, which makes me a perfectionist, right? And so I want my patients to get the best possible outcomes, which means I want them to have every single tool available to them for their success. One of those tools is motivating the patients, incentivizing them to be invested in their own care. By offering them care free of charge, I'm taking away one of those most important tools. And so I'm already setting that patient up for a poorer outcome if we don't find a way to get those patients to invest in themselves. And so this is how the M25 works, M25 program works, right? So you come in and again, we have this scenario, $5,000, right? I don't have $5,000. I can't qualify for your financing program. Okay. This is what I'm going to have you do. I want you to go down the street to the orphan grain train, bring our M25 program card with you and just tell them, Dr. Aguila sent me over. No sweat. They call me up and they say, doc, Mr. Smith is over here or Johnny is over here. Johnny wants, uh, Johnny, you know, he, he said you sent him over. What do you need? And I'll say, I'm just picking a number off the top of my head. You know, I'll say mm, 200. No sweat, doc. He hangs up the phone. He tells you, Johnny, Dr. Aguila wants you to volunteer 200 hours of your time here. As soon as you're done with that 200 hours, we'll give him a call back. So they call me back when you're done with your volunteer service. And I say, all right, send Johnny over. We'll do his surgery. No charge. So what have we accomplished in that case? Number one, you got the surgery you needed. Number two, you didn't suffer any kind of financial hardship as a result of it. Okay. Number three, you're invested in your outcome, right? Because you're thinking to yourself, wow, I invested 200 hours of my own blood, sweat, and tears into my surgery. Okay. I don't want to mess this up because then I'll have to do another 200 hours to fix whatever <laughs> I messed up. Right. That's and right. then what happened? The, Volunteer organization that you worked with has benefited from your work. The community, the, the, the community that that volunteer organization serves has benefited from your work. What else? You have seen that no matter how poor you are, somebody else out there is worse off and you helped them. What's that do for your dignity? What's it do for your self-worth? What does it do for your self-esteem? Oh, it's through the roof, right? And then on top of that, everybody on my team has the knowledge and the satisfaction of knowing that we got to do medical mission work right in our own backyard. We got to help our neighbors, okay? Neighbors helping neighbors. I didn't need to go to Vietnam. I didn't need to go to Venezuela or Timbuktu or Zimbabwe or wherever in order to help people in need. There are people in need right here in our own neighborhood, and we're able to help them. And that's what this is about. You know, what else have we done? We've, we've gotten that person to invest not just in himself, but in his community. So who loses? Nobody. Who wins? Everyone. That's something Johnny and I kind of talked about. Physicians make a decent amount of money and we believe we have a responsibility. You know, we're averagely pretty well educated have good financial means, we have a responsibility to use those resources to make society better. And you're just skipping a bunch of steps and going straight to how can I make society better, help patients. You're just hitting all of these positive things back to back. And it's really beautiful, honestly, how it's set up. It's great. Well, thank you. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different things that are happening here that a lot of people don't even realize until they actually get involved in the program. The part that I love the most, the question that always comes up, okay, how do you decide who qualifies for this program? We get that question all the time, okay? Now, where does that question come from? So I know that the two of you are second-year med students, so you're not as familiar with this yet. Uh, so I'll give you a, a brief, you know, brief lesson in, in, in how things work for people who are, who are, uh, who are you know, um, indigent. Um, so let's say, for instance... 
you didn't have insurance, you don't have any money. You go into one of these public clinics and you tell them, I don't have insurance, I don't have any money, but I need care. They're like, great. We just need to see what tier you qualify for. You know, maybe you can get your care for free. So what do you need to do in order to determine whether or not you qualify for the free care? You have to bring in all kinds of financial documents. You got to bring your tax returns. You got to bring in bank statements. You got to bring in all kinds of stuff for them to review. And it doesn't matter how friendly the person is that's reviewing all your financial records. Okay. Every single person I've spoken to that's ever had to go through this has said the same thing. No matter how nice those people are, you always feel like you're standing naked in front of a stadium full of people. Okay. That's what it is. Yeah. It's very dehumanizing. You know, I mean, you're taking information which is very private and you're having to share it with the whole world. And a lot of people are like, I lose whatever dignity I have left when I have to do that. And, and that's one of the comments I've gotten from patients about the M25 program. Thank you, doctor, for respecting my dignity, for restoring my dignity and giving me the opportunity to take care of this myself. So who decides who qualifies for the M25 program? The patient does. Why? Because every single patient, and I don't care if they're a multi-billionaire or if they're a homeless guy on the street corner with a styrofoam cup, they all get offered the same three options. Okay, for any given procedure. So let's say, for instance, I'm doing a septoplasty to straighten out somebody's septum inside their nose so they can breathe better. I, it doesn't matter what your income is, that price is going to be the same. Why? Because it's fair, right? Like when you go to the grocery store, they don't say, well, you know, let's see your tax return before we tell, how, before we tell you how much of the milk is going to cost, right? I mean, you don't have to go through that. Like milk, Costs however many dollars a gallon, and that's how much it costs, period, right? Why? Because it's fair, and that's what this is about. This is about fairness, right? And so who decides who qualifies for the program? The patient does, because the patient makes a value judgment. The patient decides what's more important to me, my money, my time, or my problem. And then they make the decision. Is there some third-party bureaucrat sitting in an ivory tower a thousand miles away that's never, ever seen the patient and doesn't know anything about them making the decision as to whether or not the patient can get surgery? No. Who makes that determination? The patient. So what have we done? We have restored the doctor-patient relationship. It's not the doctor-insurance company-patient relationship. It's the doctor-patient relationship. You don't have anybody else in between interfering with that decision as to whether or not you should proceed with care. You know, you don't have somebody saying, well, you know, do we have prior authorization? The only authorization I need is from the patient. We don't have to worry about any of those other things. We cut out the middleman, a whole bunch of middlemen, and that's where we save cost and we drive quality. So when I was, when, when I was preparing for this, I looked at your website a little bit. I watched a couple of videos and um, I, uh, I thought the M25 program was pretty cool. You know, I was like, people who don't have means can still get care. But hearing you talk about it, you, you catch the vision. You, 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 I didn't think about dignity and about giving back to your community and, and all these things. So, yeah, that, that's pretty cool to hear. I, I wanted to ask, what about, and, and I, I saw this on your website as well, but I want to I hear it from you because I know it'll come up, but what about people who can't serve, you know, ah. are in a wheelchair? So or- great. So this, so this is another question that was asked by me, asked of me by one of my, one of my colleagues. And, and I use the word colleague because the way he asked it wasn't very friendly. So he said to me, he goes, well, what about, cause it, there's a patient that I, that I take care of who he had referred to me who has cerebral palsy. Okay, he's wheelchair bound. He's nonverbal, and he effectively can't take care of himself. He can't even move his own wheelchair. Somebody has has to do it for him, right? And he said, "Well, what about him? Why do you hate people like him? Why do you hate people who are quadriplegic and nonverbal and can't take care of themselves? You know, this is awfully ableist of you." And I looked at him, and I said, "Wow, is that really what you think? You know, well, let me help you understand." how the M25 program really works. Because at no point do we require the patients to do all of the service by themselves without anybody's assistance. 
Okay. We invite patients to recruit family members and neighbors and friends and even strangers to help them complete the volunteer service. Okay. And this is actually uh, an even greater benefit than most people realize. Okay. So two things happen when you have a whole bunch of people volunteering to help you. Okay. And, and we, we require that if somebody is volunteering on behalf of somebody else. So let's say, for instance, again, Johnny will use you as the example. You needed help taking care of these volunteer hours. Well, anybody that's going to volunteer for you has to meet you face to face. Okay. Uh, we require that uh, for all of our volunteers. Uh, that wasn't something that was in place initially, but it, it definitely is in place now because we found it's a huge benefit. And two things uh, come about as a result. Number one, most patients who are considering the M25 program feel very much alone. They feel like they've been screwed by the system. They feel like nobody out there understands what's going on and nobody cares. When you as the patient get to meet face-to-face -face with people who are volunteering for you, you have a very real sense of the moral support that you're receiving. You know, one of the patients that we took care of in the M25 program had over 300 people volunteer to help him. And he told me before he enrolled in the M25 program, he said, Doc, who's going to help me? You know, I'm just, I'm just Joe Schmo. You know, I mean, my own brother, you know, is pissed off at me because, you know, I, I tell him how, how, how much of a financial impact my healthcare has been. And I said, don't you worry about it. You're going to be surprised at just how many people come out, come out of the woodwork to help you. And so there's that moral, that moral support uh, that patients feel in a very real way. But on top of that, there's also a moral authority that goes along with it. So when you meet that person, so Johnny, you meet a volunteer, you meet Jane Smith and Jane Smith says, Johnny, I'm volunteering for you. I am investing my time, my energy, my blood, sweat, and tears in your outcome. Please do what the doctor tells you so that my investment doesn't end up being wasted. Okay? And so now you've got 100 people or 300 people or however many other people saying, yes, we believe in you, but please do what the doctor asks so that our investment is worthwhile, so that it wasn't made in vain. Now, there's a place for monetary donations within our society. You know, when people say, I'm going to write a check to help you out, okay? But do you get that? Do you feel that sense of, of moral support when some anonymous organization, some faceless entity hands you a check? Do you feel any sense of moral duty to that person to not screw things up when you get, you know, a pile of money that doesn't have, that doesn't have any people attached to it? No. And again, I'm not saying that there isn't a place for, for those kinds of uh, charitable donations. There certainly is. But I think that in this scenario, the, the benefits of the volunteer service go far beyond just getting the patient to invest in themselves because now the patient's investing in their community and the community is investing in them. So in addition to strengthening the patient's bonds with the healthcare community, you've strengthened the bonds of the entire community. And, and we've then rekindled in the American heart, this, this latent desire for volunteerism because, you know, Americans, it's been my experience uh, are suckers for underdogs, right? I mean, that's our, 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 our country's entire history has been one of an underdog. And, and so it's, it's built into our cultural psyche that, that we want to help underdogs. Well, the M25 program is a beautiful way to do that. And I would argue it's one of the best ways, um, because there's a very real problem with, with healthcare finance these days. When you consider that last year, um, roughly two-thirds of all individual bankruptcies in the United States were due to medical debt, which doesn't surprise a lot of people. But what most people do find surprising is that of those people that went bankrupt due to medical debt, three-fourths of them had insurance. Okay, So Jeez. if that's the case, then is, is insurance the answer? 
You know, people say, oh, no, no, no. It's Just get them good. insurance. Get them insurance. That'll fix the problem. Well, three quarters of those people are still going to end up with financial problems, even though they have insurance. I really do like this interplay here between you're, you're looking at the patient as an individual, but you're also taking a step back and looking soci- at society at large, which is not all that easy, you know, especially since me and Johnny are kind of early in our medical careers. We get in thinking we're just going to be spending one-on-one time with patients and that's all that it's going to be about. But it's like, it's not that simple. We have a responsibility to look at the larger issues and try to get positive outcomes in those instances too, you know? Yes. Well, and I don't disagree. And I think, you know, one of the things that we have, one of the ways in which we have failed in medicine over the last 50 or 60 years, uh, and I think one of the biggest ways in which we failed in medicine is by, as physicians, abdicating our responsibilities to patients financially. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and when did that start? In, in my humble opinion, as though I've ever had a humble opinion, uh, <laughs> you know, it started when doctors started saying, you know what, uh, I'm not interested in running a business. I just want to take care of patients. You know, and and I can understand that. Uh, believe me, I understand that. I, I would love to just do surgery all day long. Okay, w- when I was in Afghanistan, uh, I was operating typically from seven in the morning until midnight, six days a week. Okay, and I mean it was it was amazing. I was like, I'm a surgeon, and I'm getting to do a whole bunch of surgery. This is what I was made for, right? But surgery is only a part of what I do, and what I'm supposed to be doing as a physician is taking care of the whole patient, okay? Using the expertise that I have to take care of the, 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 the problems that the patient has that I can have an impact on, okay? And that's not just the stuff that I do with my hands. Um, and I would argue that the stuff I do with my hands is actually the least important of all the different things I do for my patients. And so, you know, way back when, you had a whole bunch of doctors who said, you know what, I'm not interested in doing any administrative work. I'm just interested in taking care of patients. What ends up happening is that somebody has to do that administrative work. Somebody has to figure out how to keep the lights on and pay the bills. And so you pass that off to somebody else who may be very well-intentioned, but again, the incentives are different because they don't have the same priorities. Even if they try to have the same priorities, they can't have the same perspective as a physician. Okay, That would be like, for instance, me talking to the CEO of our local bank while I'm doing, um, let's say, a sciatic nerve procedure and say, hmm, should I cut this or not? Well, uh, uh, you know, I mean, what kind of expertise does that person have have to make that decision? Well, they don't, right? They'd be like, well, you know, that sounds like a good idea. I mean, I suppose that would be something that would be good to do. And they might be very (laughs) well-intentioned, right? Um, But the doctor is the only person that has the view of all of the pieces of the puzzle. The only one, okay? There isn't a nurse out there that understands the risk benefits and alternatives of a particular procedure the way a doctor does, okay? There isn't an MBA administrator that understands the risks, benefits, and alternatives of the decision the way a doctor does, okay? If you have some administrator who's trying to decide, well, do we buy these sutures or do we buy those sutures uh, for the operating room? Well, you know, they might say, well, you know, I mean, I was hired to save the company money. I was hired to save the hospital money. But the doctor is sitting there thinking, well, I don't care how much money it is. What I care about is whether or not we're going to get good outcomes. But if you have to make a compromise, who's the best person to make that decision about the compromise? The doctor. We're the doctor, yeah. Exactly. Okay. And so what direct primary care does And what our M25 program does and what our practice and other practices like ours that have chosen to go outside the healthcare insurance um, model, what we've all chosen to do is take all those administrators out of the picture so that the patient and the doctor together and without interference can make the best decisions for the patient. So I want to ask two final questions. Sure. So the first one is is more from like a logistics standpoint if you with the m25 program are giving providing free care how do you maintain overhead costs and how do you how do you make money you know how do you provide for your family and then second 
how can the M25 program be scaled so that other providers can do a similar a similar model throughout the country? Sure. So <clears throat> let's let's touch on the. Uh, I'll, I'll start with your first question. And I'm trying to think of how I can put this so as not to be too terribly inflammatory. Uh, <laughs> I like inflammatory. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's always fun. So let me, let's take an example. Okay. So um, let's say a tonsillectomy. Okay. Mm-hmm. When I see somebody for tonsillectomy, you know, I have to see them for the initial visit. And then I have to see them in the hospital when I do the procedure. And I have to see them for at least one post-operative visit. Right. When you take into consideration all the time that's spent on on the, the preoperative visit, uh, plus all the paperwork, plus the time in the hospital doing the procedure, plus all the paperwork in the hospital doing the procedure, plus the post-op visit, it could be anywhere from four to six hours of work. Do you know how much Medicaid pays for those four hours of work? Take a guess. Uh, how many, Cleveland? 5,000? How about you, Chandler? What's your guess? I I don't even have a guess. How about around a hundred bucks? Okay, somewhere between a hundred and two hundred bucks for four hours of work. Now, I have to pay somebody to put together that bill to send to Medicaid, and then when Medicaid rejects the bill, which they often do, I have to pay that person to appeal the bill. Okay, plus all the paperwork that goes with it. Okay, and then we have to send a whole bunch of other paperwork. So eventually, what ends up happening? Eventually, in many cases, depending on the kind of procedure, it costs us more money to chase after the money than the actual amount of money that we get. And so what does Medicaid give us the opportunity to do? Medicaid gives us the privilege of paying to throw away our own money. Okay, um, which is why we no longer participate in Medicaid, because I think the M25 program is a better proposition. It's a better proposition for the patient because the patients get better outcomes and it respects their dignity. Okay, And it's a better proposition for us because we actually end up ahead by, you know, by not charging anybody any money. We actually end up ahead of where we <laughs> would be if we were taking care of that patient through Medicaid. So essentially what you're saying is, is you would have, you know, X percentage of patients who were Medicaid patients, you've replaced those with X percentage of M25 patients and you come out ahead because there's no loss from right. the, the Medicaid hassle. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it's not just the Medicaid patients. I mean, there's a number of other patients. I've had insured patients come and say, well, you know, doc, uh, I really like that idea. Can I, can, can I do part of this using the M25 program and part of it paying you in cash for the rest of the procedure? Sure. No problem. You know, we'll, we'll do the math. You know, I mean, we have one patient, he's a self-employed and so he doesn't have insurance. Uh, he owns a small business and he he asked, he said, doc, um, you know, I, I don't have a whole lot of cash, but can I pay you with gift certificates to my business? Sure. No problem. I had a rancher come and ask me, he goes, doc, I don't have a whole lot of money, you know, laying around, but can I pay you with a side of beef? And I said, well, as long as I don't hear any mooing in the waiting area, I think we're good. You know, I mean, you know, not having insurance contracts offers a great deal of flexibility. And that flexibility gives us the opportunity to offer patients quality care in situations where the system would not allow them to get that care. And then just to follow up with that last question, how can providers who want to practice this model, what resources do they have? How can they do something similar in their practices? That's a great question. So we actually have a team. We've gotten this question so many times. We have a team set up in our office now, which helps people to make that transition if that's something they're interested in doing. Uh, And if, you know, if people are interested in finding out more about that, they could certainly go to our website. It's m25program.com. You know, obviously you can go to healinghandsinnebraska.com also, but m25program.com is a URL which is dedicated specifically to the program and, and it'll take you right to the landing page that 
talks about the M25 program, or you can email us at info at draagila.com. That's doctor, you know, the word spelled out D O C T O R, and then my last name, A G U I L A.com. And uh, we'd be happy to get uh, anybody that's interested plugged in. You know, um, one of the challenges that we found that a lot of people face is that this program is not complicated, it's actually really really simple and it's amazingly you know deceptively simple to set up and implement but just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy and that's the challenge that a lot of people face because in order to be able to offer the m25 program you cannot be bound by insurance contracts and for a lot of people that's a really scary proposition, which is one of the reasons we've been working so closely with so many different direct primary care doctors, because direct primary care doctors have already taken that scary step of cutting off the, you know, the umbilical cord from the, from the insurance companies. You know, and they said, you know what? We're going to do it our own way, and we're going to do it better. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons we have such a, such a great partnership with so many different direct primary care practices. Well, thanks so much for spending your time with us, and we really appreciate it. It's it's been really fun for for me to hear your experience one on one. So, sure. so we really appreciate your time. Yeah, no sweat. Uh-huh.